0: I uh, I thought I would have gotten applause. Oh. <laughs> don't indulge me. It's uh... I uh, I don't know whether you remember if you were around. I started um, a series of talks called "Emotionally Healthy Church" about a month ago. So I'm kind of returning uh, to that again. We uh, we. Here at the vineyard, what we want we want to be spiritually mature as a church. You know, we want to be a spiritually uh, mature, spiritually healthy church, full of spiritually mature, or at least individuals that are moving towards a place of spiritual maturity (laughs) and spiritual health. But what we recognise is that spiritual health is inextricably connected to emotionally health. They're very much connected. We're actually using, it's coming off a book by Peter Scazzaro, who have the same title. Um, and in, in it, he said this statement, he said, it is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature whilst remaining emotionally immature. I <laughs> that, that just didn't get you started thinking, get your head around that. It's not even possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining immature emotionally immature. The two are connected. You see, I think there is like a narrow view, like a narrow religious view among some that says God is only really interested in your spiritual well-being. He's only really interested in if you pray more or you're reading the scriptures and meditating on the scriptures daily. Or He's only really interested if you're fasting and things like that. Now, don't get me wrong, God absolutely is interested in us growing in these areas that are absolutely vital to our spiritual health, or those spiritual practices. But more than that, God is also interested in you and I becoming a better person, a better husband and wife, a better co-worker, a parent, neighbor, and so on. God is very much interested in you and I learning to live life well, to become exactly what um, he intended us to be, to be fully human. That's what he is interested in. So this morning, all I'm going to do is uh, talk a little bit about being freed from generational sin or generational brokenness. It's a real thing. It's a, it absolutely is. Very, very true that patterns of behavior, patterns of um, sort of attitudes, sinful patterns and brokenness and dysfunction can and do get passed down from one generation to the next. you 've probably heard the expression haven 't you uh, oh she 's her mother 's daughter yeah <laughs> and what they 're saying is that this individual displays or mirrors certain characteristics of her mum. Or about the one, he has his father's temper. Yeah, have you heard that before? He has his father's temper. See, just like um, like genetics, like DNA, sinful, habitual behavior, emotional dysfunction and brokenness get passed down from parent to child, from child to their child, and so on and so forth. But God's desire is for us to break free from these cycles that emerge within our kind of family uh, lineage lineage, or whatever you, you call it. That we become a person who is defined not by those things, but by his spirit, the indwelt spirit of God being formed into what he designed us to be. So what we're going to do is just have a look at how this sort of generational patterns, how they've played out in in biblical examples, in biblical history. So it's kind of like a Bible study. We do a short Bible study of how generational patterns play out among the people of the scriptures. Now one of the the key players, central stories, if you like, within God's great story, is the story of Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And you, you find it in, in, in Genesis 12. So if you want to kind of follow along, uh, obviously the passages will come up. Um, but we read how uh, God takes this seemingly random guy. <laughs> he, we don't know anything about him at all until this point. But he takes this random guy and he makes this amazing promise of blessing to him and to his Offspring, And the way it kind of plays out is that God, he sets him up to be the vehicle through which his saving plan for all of humanity is eventually going to, going to come. So God's life-giving love will flow through Abraham, on through his offspring, so his immediate family, his sons, and, and then on to their family. And then eventually this blessing is going to reach and touch the entire world. And so that's what God does. He starts off with this guy, Abraham. As I say, he's an unknown guy, just unsuspecting guy and his wife Sarai. And God says, Okay, you know what? I'm gonna make you guys into a family. And that was like a that was a remarkable thing in itself, because Sarai was infertile. She couldn't have children anyway. But then God says, You know what, I'm gonna take your family, I'm gonna make it a, a big family. It's gonna be your offspring is gonna be just so numerous. Uh, And then I'm going to bless your family. And you're going to become a great nation. And so I'm going to bless this family. I'm going to bless this nation. And eventually, through them, I'm going to bless the families, the nations throughout the entire world. It's incredible, the story. Just this random bloke on the planet at that moment in time, Abraham. I mean, naturally, he was totally made up by this. He was like, Jeff, you would be... but he leaves his uh, country, his people of origin, and he runs hard after God. He runs hard after this God given calling. But do you know what? Things don't go altogether smoothly. It's not all roses along the way. <coughs> we'll check out what happens here in this chapter from verse 10. <clears throat> it says, Now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Doesn't he sound romantic? (laughs) It's not going to look good in a minute. But I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they're going to kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's for you. It's all for your benefit, love. Um, And my life will be spared because of you. Verse 14. When Abraham, or Abram at the time, came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. They were like, you should see this, this wonderful piece. Pharaoh, she is gorgeous. And, and she was taken to his palace. In other words, she was taken for the pleasures of the Pharaoh. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men and female servants, and camels, like you do. So he's okay, poor Sarai. I mean, she's like become a You know, an object of uh, the desire of the Pharaoh. But Abram's okay. He's happy. Verse 17. But the Lord, listen to this. He inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say that she was my sister? So that, you would, uh, so that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So, strange story. So Abraham and Sarai, they, they arrived in Egypt. And essentially, Abraham, he gets Sarai to lie. And basically put her life, literally put her life on the line just so that he could be safe. Just so that he could be happy and actually get lots and lots of wealth. He was a cunning, lying, sexist, idiot of a husband. (laughs) Pretty much like the rest of us (laughs) fellas, right? I know that's what you women were thinking. So I thought I'd get it in there first. But here's the thing, this wasn't just like a one-off whoopsie situation. It wasn't a, oh, rat made a bit of a dodgy uh, choice there, a bad uh, mistake. If we turn over to chapter 20, we see it happens again. From verse 1 it says, Now Abraham, he's now been renamed, Abraham moved on from there, into the region of Negev, I think it's pronounced, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed at Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. There it is again. Then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, uh, sent for Sarah and took her. Man. Exactly the same thing playing out again. There's kind of this pattern emerging in his life. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting, but not in a positive way. Because what we see is the sin of Abraham, and uh, we see what he does, and we see how that kind of lives on in the life of his son. This is in chapter 26. Now, at this point of the story, Abraham and Sarah, they've had two sons. Well, actually, his first son was born to him through his wife's maidservant, of all things that he's gone back. He went and had a child with her servant, and he called him Ishmael. And then his second son was with his wife, they were both in their old age, and he called him Isaac. Now, both these sons now are grown up. It says in verse 1, Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine of Abram's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines of Gerar. So it's the same king ruling. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt live in the land where I tell you to to live. Stay in this land for a while. I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. Keeping my commands, my decrees and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So first of all, this amazing promise, this blessing that God gave to Abraham is passed down to the next generation. But then look at this in verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, look at this, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Wow, well, the exact same story that played out with his father is now playing out with his son, Isaac. It's exactly the same place. It's the same king in this, in this situation. It's sort of like father, like son. is sin, it continues on. The lies, the deceit, and all the selfishness just seems to go on. Now, you might find this hard to believe, uh, but um, the lies... The deceit, it carries on then through Isaac's children as well. So in the very next chapter in 27. Many of you probably know that Isaac, he had twin boys. The oldest uh, boy was Esau and the youngest was Jacob. So this now is kind of a couple of decades on. Okay, so it's a number of years on. Um, Esau and Jacob, they've all grown up. But they don't get on, (laughs) and they really don't get on with with each other at all. So in verse 18, we see Jacob, he's now coming to his father, his old father. And he says, it says here, he went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, so your firstborn, I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. That's what he's after. That's what all this was about, this blessing. Now, this blessing essentially is the inheritance uh, of this promise that God gave to his uh, his grandfather, Abraham. It was rightfully due to Esau, the firstborn. And so that's what he's after. Verse 20 said, so Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly? Talking about the game, uh, his kill, at my son. The Lord, your God, gave me success, he replied. He's saying all the right things that he, he knows his father wants him to hear. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. He had doubts in his mind. Now, Esau, apparently, he was a hairy dude, <laughs> okay, he had hairy arms, man, he was a freak, and uh, <laughs> so Jake what Jacob had done he 'd covered up his arms with animal skin so that he could kind of trick his dad into thinking he 's esau um, and now isaac who 's clearly is blind he 's really really old he 's probably losing his marbles a little bit. Um, but here's Jacob lying, barefaced, lying to his father in order to satisfy his own selfishness, to rob. And he's ripping off his brother's birthright. Man, what a scumbag he is. <laughs> Verse 22, Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, Your voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his freak brother, <laughs> um, yeah, Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really, my son, Esau? still doubting about it. He asked, I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. The thing is, if you know anything about Jacob and his story, this is the first of many lying, deceitful episodes that are documented throughout his life. In fact, if you have a look at the meaning of his name in the Hebrew, it it literally means deceiver. That's what Jacob means. And that's exactly what he became. He became like a chief conman, like a used car salesman. (laughs) Or a politician. <laughs> and uh, he was just a liar of a liar. So not only does all this sin you know, of Adam live on to Isaac um, and on to Jacob, it's getting worse and worse along the way. It's expanding. It's getting worse. Now... Uh, We don't really have the time to go through this morning. How the story sort of really plays out, but what we read is it really does spiral down and down and down. Now, if you don't know anything about it, I just encourage you to read about Jacob's kids. Um, It's from chapter thirty-seven, I think it is. But um, Jacob ends up having twelve children. It's a a well-known story as twelve sons from four wives. So sleeping with four wives now, uh, and they're a completely dysfunctional family. The family is just rife with favoritism and jealousy and hatred and lying and deceit and all sorts. So looking over all of these stories, these generational stories, <laughs> we see these patterns of sin that emerge and flow in Abraham's life, and then onto his son, Isaac, and then onto his grandson, Jacob, and then again onto the son's um, of Jacob, like Joseph and his eleven brothers, so these are a number of things that have emerged. First of all, it's lying. Abraham is lying about his his wife Sarah. And he does that on two occasions. Then Isaac does exactly the same with his wife. He's lying about his beautiful wife Rebecca. And Jacob, and all, all of his lies, he's just like lying one after another. He's like full of lies. But he lies, as I say, flat lies directly to his father's face. And then there's Jacob's sons, and they do exactly the same thing. They lie to his face about their brother Joseph being killed. They said he'd been killed. So that's the first thing that flows down. It's all these lies that seem to live on. Next was this kind of misogynistic, I can't say that word, <laughs> misogynistic prejudice and all the sexual impropriety that kind of flows down. Abraham sleeping with his um, Sarah's servant, for example, basically using her as a sex slave to actually get his way. Um, yeah, so it seems that it kind of skipped the next generation, apparently, by Isaac. We, we don't know much about Isaac's uh, life as a husband. It seems that he was a fairly reasonable guy in that regard. But then we get to Jacob, and he is a total polygamist. He's like sleeping with four <laughs> four women. Um, but then this misogynistic uh, thing that flows through, it gives birth to favoritism. Abraham favors Ishmael over Isaac, and then there's all the problems that came with that. Isaac... Favors Esau over Jacob. Jacob favors Joseph over his eleven brothers, and you know all the problems that that creates. We will talk about that a bit, a bit more. In fact, it said out of out of those uh, that sort of favoritism comes jealousy and sibling rivalry and all those sorts of things. Uh, things really get Prickly between Ishmael and uh, Isaac. Ishmael ends up being booted out of the family. You're out of here. Jacob and Esau, they are constantly at each other's throats as they're growing up. Um, Jacob ends up robbing Esau, as we just read, of his inheritance and God's promise through Abraham. Jacob's sons, they end up selling their brother Joseph into um, slavery. But that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It lives on from one generation onto the next and it germinates and it expands and it infects. Just one more passage, okay, just to kind of wrap up this little Bible study on this. This is in Exodus 20. This is the part of the story where uh, the Israelites, or God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses yeah, on the mountain. So Moses is up on the mountain, the people are down at the foot of the mountain, and, and Moses is now encountering God. And God speaks. It says in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So there's number one. Get that sorted. No other. I'm number one for you. Uh, verse four. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in hev- heaven above or on earth below, beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And he gives the reason why. For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, before you freak out a little bit about what is being said here, this passage is so often ripped out of context and quoted incorrectly. What it is not saying is that kids get punished for the sinful acts of their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. That's not what he is saying in this context. What he's saying is three things. Firstly, generational sin is a real thing. It's real. It's like DNA, as I was saying earlier. It gets passed down from parent to child. Sin, or perhaps more specifically, um, specific sin has this inclination uh, or we have this common flowing inclination towards or leaning towards specific sin throughout generations. It's passed down. And that's the first thing. So the second thing, it's saying that sin has effects or consequences that stretch across generations. <clears throat> Think about individuals who are suffering even now as adults for the divorce of their, uh, of their parents when they were kids. You know, so it it affects them. It's an ongoing thing, or maybe maybe that sort of dysfunctional relationship of their parents leading to the divorce came about because of a grandfather's abusive behaviour of the mother or the father. Sin has this kind of ripple down effect and can cause just horrific damage through throughout the family from generation to generation. So secondly, and thirdly, the third thing that this passage tells us is when you weigh up God's mercy and God's judgment, his mercy wins every time. When it speaks about punishing, uh, punishment being on children to, to the third and fourth generation, what does it say about his love? It says that it's shown... To the thousandth generation. So you put those two things on a scale: (laughs) His mercy and His judgment. Mercy always triumphs over judgments. What the Bible says. (laughs) This reality spells out the character of our God. He is a God of justice. He is a just God. Okay, so (laughs) we're not we're not saying He's not a God of justice. He is a God of justice, uh, but His heart is not of, you should get what you deserve. Okay, that's not God's heart. His heart is to show love and mercy. See, this isn't about Yahweh God being a God who punishes you for the sin or sinful actions of your dad or what he did or the wrongdoings of your grandfather or grandmother and how they messed up. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament, in a, in a conversation with someone, he opposes that mindset. (laughs) What it's saying here is there is a good probability that the sin committed by the grandfather lives on through the father and lives on through yourself. And because God is a just God and he punished the grandfather for that sin, he will punish the father for the sin if it flows through and he'll punish you for that same sin. The big point this morning is that um, our family lineage, the events that take place down through our family of origin can have a huge bearing on who we are today. Like I say, like divorce of a parent or you know, uh, a loss of somebody in the family or whatever, an abuse that took place in the previous generations. All these things have the power to shape us. You know, within all of our families here, there's been good things, right? And bad things. We're all hands up, yeah, we've had good things. We've all had bad things. And all these things make us who we are today. And we bring those things from our past into our present. And there's a great potential for us to deliver those things to our future, to our kids you know it happened to Abraham, and it happened to throughout his successive family and here 's the thing: Abraham was still a, an outstanding guy, right He was still amazingly blessed by God, God really used him, uh, brought about his purposes eventually for the whole of humanity through him uh, in the person of Jesus. Another quote from peter Scazzaro's book. He says this, in emotionally healthy churches, people understand how how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They've realized from scripture and from life that an intricate relationship exists between the kind of person they are today and their past. They're very, very much... Connected, yeah, there is a whole bunch of things from our life that have the power to shape us. I mean, we were talking about this last year in the Living It series of talks. I kind of spoke about it quite a bit, but the primary thing and, and there are exceptions to this you know in certain circumstances, but the primary thing, the most powerful thing that will shape us and influence who we become will be the family that we actually grew up with. (laughs) And what Scissero is saying here in this quote is, for us to be healthy people, and for us to be an emotionally healthy church, we need to be freed from the power of our past. And how will that happen? Well, in addition to the fact that we have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer... Um, in addition to that, we need to be willing to acknowledge, to look back and to understand our past. We need to look back, look at our family of origin in order to better understand who we are today or why we are who we are today in order for us to move forward. Now what I'm not talking about here is looking back in an unhealthy Obsessive sort of way, constantly looking back, you're kind of imprisoning ourselves all the more. Um, that's kind of like reinforcing our identity with the things that have, we've gone through or our past and, uh, and things like that. That's not what we're saying. But we need to glance back and just gain an insight um, and an understanding to be able to understand these patterns that emerge throughout our history, throughout our family heritage. So that we can better cooperate with what the things that the the Holy Spirit is doing within us and uh, how He wants to redefine our identity. So, let's just very, very quickly look at three things we can do in this process. Firstly, we need to resolve to take the time to look back. there's simply you no know, avoiding it. We just, we've got to take time. We've got to make time to look back. Let's look at our family of origin. Let's identify the things that have shaped us today. And remember, this is, this is a long and complex process, okay? This isn't just a, you know, oh, look back. Yeah, fine, let's move it, move on. It's, it's a complex conversation, if you like, with God. Now, for some of us, this will be relatively straightforward, a process you know, maybe you very quickly can just think back maybe you've been thinking back now whilst we've been talking about it and thinking oh, yeah I'm thinking about things that my dad did or my granddad did and I, I can see that pattern emerging maybe that's quite, a, quite easy for some but for some there's, that's really really tricky it's really hard to do and I've said before I'm not naturally an introspective sort of person um, I'm not good at looking inward and being able to articulate where I am and what my emotional state uh, is. But what helped, and quite surprisingly for me, was sitting through a SoZo session. I talked about it a few weeks ago. A SoZo session is kind of like counselling, but it's not. <laughs> it's kind of like this kind of pick one or two people who have been trained... To help you kind of coach your way through that conversation, a dialogue with the Holy Spirit, and sort of navigate those issues, and regard, and look back, and think about what's happened in our past and how it bears uh, effect on our present, and and so. And then there's more to it than that. As I say, much to my surprise, I had uh, a couple of things emerge. Uh, when I went through my sozo session, um, I'd never given any thought to these particular things in decades, probably two or three decades. I'd never thought about these things in my grown-up years, and it, they kind of ch- popped into my mind as we were having this conversation with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and they're just emotional things, and they affect me in an emotional and spiritual away they affect my maturity spiritual maturity and health and so what we did was just very tenderly kind of walk through those things handing them over to Jesus learning to put them into his hands and releasing them to him and uh, just out of that realization actually I'm bound up in in that sort of area so for some you may it may require you doing something like that you know, sign up to a, a sozo session or a couple of sozo sessions if you do want to do that give, give us a shout or give Rob a shout as well we can point you in the right directions with that just somebody there to help assist with that process of looking back in a controlled and tender and careful sort of way some may even require Christian, Christian counselling could benefit from Christian counselling I've gone through that as well you know and there is uh, there's really good stuff to be gained through good quality Christian counselling too. But that's a place to start off, taking the courage to kind of look back. And sometimes it's helpful to sit in with others to help us, as I say, sort of navigate through that. Sometimes it's just about set inside a time. At the time, sitting down before God and just engaging in sort of listening prayer i 'm just going to like sit before God, and I just want to hear Him, hear his voice and what he 's saying, what does he kind of recall to our memory? what events does he bring to our mind so first then is to look and identify, identify sin or dysfunction, uh, brokenness from our past second is. Take ownership uh, of the thing, if it's uh, a particular habit, habitual practice, or take ownership, responsibility. When we identify sin and dysfunction uh, in our in our own life and recognize it as a pattern from a previous generation, there is an urge for us to kind of say, "It's their fault." (laughs) Ah. It's my dad's fault. by The way, or it's my granddad's fault. The reason for why I am what I am. It's it's their fault. Now that's not the response what we're looking for here. That's not. And actually, that's not a new response. You know, by the way, we've always been looking back at, and and partitioning blame, pointing blame to others. Right? Remember Adam in the garden when he was caught sinning. It's the woman made me do. It. Oh, the woman that you gave me, God, she made me do it. So we've been doing it from the, from the beginning. But the point here is not to land up in a place of being angry with dad, angry with mum or grandparents or other. We take responsibility for our actions today. We take ownership of our own actions, our own sin, our own responses. So your sin is your own sin. It's not the responsibility of your parents. And then last of all, repent. That's <laughs> an easy one. Repent. You see, we won't actually break the power of our past simply by I just gotta muster up more determination in this. i just absolutely I'm 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 not going to I swear I'm not gonna bring up my kids like like I was brought up. I, I was brought up really well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, yeah, Mum's going. What did I do wrong? <laughs> I, I, I had like great, great parents. They were brilliant. But you know what I'm saying? It's like um, sometimes we sometimes we can kind of look back like that and think, I'm just not going to be like that. Like what I experienced, I'm going to have uh, bring up my kids, and the chances are you will do. Exactly the same thing as your parents did. <laughs> it probably will be the case. But we need to bring these things before God. And it's, and it's not like I just have to muster up lots of guilt here. I've just got to be oh really, really sorrowful and guilt. And that's got to be at the front of my mind and uh, uh, my heart. But it's about us taking our sin and our brokenness to God and putting it before his feet. And to our community. So to both. <laughs> to both. It's both bringing things before God and our community. Those who we trust and those who, who we know love us and care for us. And then allow God and others to reparent us. You know, if that's the issues that we're talking about here, we, need to, we all need to be reparented. The absolute worst thing that we can do in these sorts of circumstances uh, when it comes to sin and dysfunction, and if we're talking about general sin or generational sin, is to simply hide it away or deny it. You know, just kind of sweep it under the carpet. I don't really have anger issues. I don't go down the pub and start fights. You know, (laughs) things like that. I don't really have anger issues, no, no. I don't have issues relating to forgiveness or holding on to bitterness and mistrust. It's not that. It's not really an issue in my life. That's not a great way to deal with these things. Keeping those things, you know, brushing them aside, putting them under the carpet is kind of like keeping them in the dark, keeping them in a secret place. And when we do that, they keep us enslaved. They lock you into. Um, wrong thinking uh, unhealthy thinking unhealthy living habits but bringing those things into the light however has the power to shine God's light into or upon these things and we see them for what they really are we see that it's this lie we see this distortion and then we can defeat it in his power but the thing is we need God's Power. We need the Holy Spirit working in us. And we need the community of believers. We need the family of God. That's what we are. We need the family of God and we need to be re-parented. The church has a a part to play in that. And I'm talking about all of us here. It's the church's job to re-parent. That's all of us. So we all have a part to play in re parenting one another we all have roles in reteaching one another how to live life in accordance with uh, the family of God and God's kingdom and so on and the point is that our biological family doesn't have to define who we are today or doesn't have to define our future it doesn't have to shape uh, our ultimate identity when it comes to God's kingdom you know, when it comes to the uh, kingdom life and kingdom living, you and I are not victims of our past anymore. No matter what we've experienced from our past, we're no longer victims. When we become children of God, we are adopted into his family. We become citizens of his kingdom, of his rule and reign. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is indwelling every single one of us. And we have, with God's help, the ability to take all of that rubbish, all of the dysfunction, all of the sin. Again, I'm not talking about my parents, okay? But we can take all that rubbish, all that dysfunction, all of that sin... And sometimes we would carry it forward. But we can cut ties with those things. We can break away, breaking these repeating cycles um, and walk away from those sorts of things. We can, in God, with God's power, with God's help, walk into a new future, walk into a new destiny, God's future for us. <coughs> but that won't happen naturally it won 't happen by accident. <laughs> we need to set our intention upon this. We need to lean in towards god 's power, lean into the indwelling spirit of God within us, as I said earlier this is it 's complex because emotion and then sin and dysfunction and all this it 's really, really. Complex, it's not simple, it's not like a walk in the park process. But you know what? I pray that we would find a renewed trust in our Heavenly Father for this. That we would learn and grow indeed in a trust in trusting Him with our past and trusting Him with our present and future. <laughs> Inclining towards Him to find a new freedom today and a new freedom that will pave away for an emotional and spiritual healthy future. So why don't we, why don't we bow our heads and just um, still our hearts before God and Holy Spirit to come and speak into our hearts that we might hear that small, still, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Let's just take a moment then just to listen.